How is everybody? <laughs> hey, those of you who are doing the fast, how are you guys holding up? <laughs> that's more enthusiasm than I expected. That's, that's good. Uh, I, I don't know if I ever told the story. Um, I might have mentioned it briefly. Uh, my wife and I, we've been doing this fast, this 40-day fasting for, I guess, about 14 years now, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, church we got saved in, uh, there was an old guy that I, I became friends with. I was in my mid-20s, and he was in his mid-70s. Uh, his name was Bill Texter. He's already passed away, which is sad, because I wish that he could have seen kind of what, uh, what he taught me, kind of what it snowballed into. But um, I got to be good friends with Bill, and he was a volunteer at our church. And uh, he would come in, and all he would do is make copies of sermons, like DVDs, and he would send them to prisons all over the country. And that's all he did, just as a volunteer. Neat guy. He was an old rock star. He used to tour with like Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and like all these guys. And was like this rock star in the 50s and just a super cool guy. He dated Johnny Cash's sister and was signed with Johnny Cash's record label for a long time. Just a really neat dude. And um, one day I walked in and Bill was in our media room making copies of DVDs and he just looked sick. Like he just didn't look very good. I walked up to him and was like, Bill, man, you okay? You, you holding up all right? And he, he pulled me aside kind of where we were alone and he said, I'm going to tell you something that I don't ever tell people. But he goes, for the last 35, 40 years, I can't remember what he said, long time. He said, every year I start off the year and I do 40 days of nothing but distilled water. That's it, for 40 days. And I read my Bible and I pray. I drink water. I don't eat anything. I don't watch anything or listen to anything. I do that every year and I've been doing it you know, for decades and decades. I was in my mid-20s and I remember being like, Bill, if you can do that, <laughs> I can do something. And that was kind of like the birth of the 40-day the, the fast thing. And, and uh, got my wife, roped her into it, and roped a couple of my friends into it. Started a church and roped all you guys <laughs> into it. And uh, so we've been doing this at the church now for, for nine, ten years. And, and um, again, Bill passed away, but I wish he, he could have seen kind of what he started. But uh, it's life-changing. And for those of you who are doing it, there's even a difference in how we worship and Church feels a little bit different and, and things become a little bit more clear. And I know it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be a sacrifice. It's supposed to be a challenge. That's kind of how we grow. And um, so those of you who are doing it, I hope it's a blessing. And we're only like 10 days into it, so we still got a long way to go. So uh, anyways, <laughs> hope it continues to be a blessing if you're doing it. So we are in the book of Revelation. If you're new to the church, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible. We break them down line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And um, we've been working through the book of Revelation. Now, we're in kind of a, kind of a dark spell of Revelation. We, if you weren't here last week, it starts off okay, but it ends quite dark. And then as we get into chapters 15 and 16 that we're going to do today, and then chapter 17 that we're going to do next week, um, it's dark. It's heavy. It's not really a happy ending kind of uh, chapters in Revelation. It's, it's very, very tough, very tough reading. Now, if you haven't been here, let me kind of briefly catch up to speed a little bit. In the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 11 focus on a seven-year time period called the Great Tribulation, and it's told from kind of a heavenly vantage point by the author, John. As you get into chapters 12 through 18, it's also about the same seven years of the Great Tribulation, which are the years leading up to Jesus' return, okay? But in the, in the chapters 12 through 18, it's not from a heavenly vantage point, it's from an earthly vantage point, okay? From a different perspective. And it's told differently than it was earlier in Revelation. Not the events, but how it's displayed. In chapters 12 through 18, John the author is seeing kind of like an, an epic play take, take place in front of him. And there's different characters. 
There's the dragon, which is obviously the devil, and there's this mother that is more than likely the persecuted church, and the son that is, of course, Jesus Christ, and you have this epic battle of good and evil. In chapter 13, continuing on in this kind of play thing that, that, that God is showing John, we see kind of the devil's plan. We see that there is going to be an antichrist. It's going to be a, a, a corrupt political leader who's going to have a second leader that's going to be a corrupt religious leader, the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea, and that the devil is in charge of both of them. And so you kind of get this unholy trinity. This is where the mark of the beast comes from and things like that in chapter 13. In chapter 14, we see the opposite. We kind of see God's plan unfold and that God is only going to deal with this so long, this, this evil that has risen up. We talked about that there's two harvests in chapter 14. We want to be in the first harvest. It's when God harvests out all the people who love God and fear God and who have followed his son Christ, and he's going to harvest them out of the earth. And then the second harvest is a violent harvest. It's, it's of the evil people on earth. And we're about to see that harvest unfold for the next three chapters, okay? As we get into 15 and 16 today, the bowls of wrath, God's wrath poured out on humanity. Now, again, this is, this is kind of a downer. It's kind of heavy. But at this point in the story, there are no more second chances. At this point in the story, no one repents. No one changes. There's no more Christians added to the kingdom of God. At this point, there are no more Christians left on planet Earth. Whether we leave by a rapture, if you believe in that, or if we believe in, uh, that it's some kind of martyrdom, that all Christians have been killed, by this point in the story, there are no good guys left on planet Earth, okay? So it's a couple of very, very heavy chapters. So you should have your notes hand out in front of you. You were handed, to them, uh, handed those when you walked in. It has everything that's gonna be on the screens or in those handouts. You have the screens. If you didn't get one of those handouts, everything I'm gonna say will be up there. Also, if you have the Experience Community app, if you will click on sermon notes at the bottom, I'm sorry, service times and then sermon notes, all the scripture and all the notes are on there so you can follow along pretty easily, okay? If you have a Bible, we are in the very last book of the Bible. We're gonna do chapters 15 and 16, all right? So I'm gonna pray. And um, guys, before I get into this, I'm gonna tell you, it says in the word of God that every single word that is contained in this book is there for a reason. It's profitable, every single word. There's nothing superfluous in the Bible. Everything is there for a reason. So everything we cover today is there because we're supposed to hear it. So my prayer for all of us today is that we have ears that are listening. We are listening. Eyes that are looking, okay? We'll come back to that idea at the very end of this, all right? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the clarity that it brings. Thank you, God, that, that we can go to your word and find answers for the questions we have in this life and, Lord, the questions that we're going to have about the afterlife, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room, for this church, that we are a church that has open ears, respondent ears, God, that we not only hear your words, but we obey your words. We do your words, God. Lord, we don't just pray for our church. We pray for every church in our community. We pray for every great nonprofit that we work with in this community, especially Doors of Hope and Meridel that leads that wonderful ministry, God, that you'll bless them. And God, we just pray that, uh, that we really, really hear what you're saying today and that it sinks deep into our hearts, God, and that we respond. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm gonna go through chapter 15 relatively quick. 
and we're going to hang out a lot longer in chapter 16, okay? John says, Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had won the victory over the beast, its image, and the number of its name, were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. This is the song. I'm about to read it to you. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty, just And true are your ways, King of nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, so more than likely, guys, I believe that Christians will be present for the seven seals, for the seven trumpets, but we will not be present during the last series of events the seven bowls, okay? Why? Because the people of God will never experience the wrath of God. And we're about to see the wrath of God poured out. So again, the only people who are on earth at this time are bad people, right? People who are evil. Now the time for second chances has has passed. And, And if you were here for chapter four, John describes a sea of glass, this placid sea in front of the throne room of God. Now we see that same sea from chapter four is not placid, it is stirring, it is churning, and that's because God is angry. It is being mixed with the wrath and anger of God. This calm sea is no longer calm. Now standing on this sea of glass were the people who had spiritually survived the reign of the Antichrist. Not physically survived, they were, they were killed by the Antichrist, but they had spiritually survived the reign of the Antichrist. Now, it's not just them, it's gonna be all believers of Jesus Christ are standing on this seat. Some scholars believe the ones that are holding the harps are the martyrs. They're the ones that were killed during the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Now, who exactly are these people on this sea? This is very, very important. These are people that have, of course, chosen Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they did that by overcoming political pressure, religious pressure, and economic pressure. The three things that will more than likely get some of us in this room are political pressure, religious pressure. Well, what do you mean by that, Corey? We're religious, right? That means that one day Christianity is even going to be twisted to where Christian leaders will only say what you want them to say. They will only say what you want to hear, and that is not always the way the gospel presents the truth, okay? So there will be political corruption, religious corruption, and there will be economic pressure. These are the people who who are made it through all three of those pressures. Now, they sing a song, It's actually two songs that are put together. One is from Exodus 15. It's called the Song of Moses. And the Song of Moses celebrates liberation from captivity, liberation from from slavery, freedom, right? The second song they sing is a New Testament song. And it's called the Song of the Lamb. And it directly opposes the worship of the Antichrist. They are worshiping the true Christ through this song, okay? Like I said, we're gonna move rapidly through this. After this, I looked, and the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of testimony, was opened. 
Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in pure bright linen with golden sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, there's little words that give us clues or ideas in Revelation. This word tabernacle is one of them. The fact that John says that God came out of this tabernacle, this tabernacle in heaven opens up. Tabernacles were not permanent structures, they were temporary structures. In the Old Testament, when the people of Israel, the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt into the promised land, they couldn't build temples, they had to build tabernacles, these portable places of worship. So what that shows us is, what is about to take place in chapter 15 and 16, what's going on here is temporary. It's not for forever. God's wrath is not going to be poured out for forever, okay? Revelation 21, 22 also tells us that the heaven that we read about here is not the heaven where you and I are going to be for eternity. Later on in Revelation, it says the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. They're gonna go away. There's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. So even those things are temporary things. So for every series of events, seals, trumpets, and now bowls, there's a team of angels that kind of enact these things that God wants them to do. This team of angels come out and they're dressed in bright linen and they're wearing gold sashes. That represents that these angels are righteous and they are correct and they are able and worthy to inflict judgment on evil humanity. Now, one of the four angels that flies around the throne, we talked about that in Revelation chapter four, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One of those angels gets these goblets. So when it says bowls there, you know, you instantly think kind of like a punch bowl. It wasn't really like a punch bowl. It was more like a goblet. Did anyone else's grandmother have like those really weird goblet things that stood in those display cases and you never drank out of them? You just kind of looked at them, right? Hey, grandma, why don't we drink out of these? Well, we don't drink out of those glasses why, right? So anyways, anyone else have weird grandparents besides me? Nobody. All right, okay, all right, a couple of you. So more than likely, it's not bowls. It's these goblets. And what they filled the goblets up with is this angel, one of the four angels, dipped them into the sea of glass that is now disturbed. And he hands this wrath and this anger to these angels, and they are to pour these out on humanity. Now, here's something that's fascinating. As these angels are preparing to pour out God's wrath, God wanted to be alone for a second. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. So God kind of gets by himself for a minute. Now, that may seem weird to you. Jesus did it a lot in the gospels. He needed to be alone sometimes. Why did God have to be alone? The reason why God wanted to be alone for a moment is think if you are the creator of all things, and you're, you're, gonna, you're about to have to destroy a large portion of your creation. That doesn't make God feel good. That, that hurts God that he has to inflict this judgment on these people that he has created and that he has loved, so he wants to be alone, okay? Now, here's where it gets a little heavy, and we're going to hang out on this part a little bit longer. John says, Then I heard a voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, 
and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped its image. The second poured out his bowl onto the sea and it turned to blood like that of a dead person and all life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers, into the springs of water, and they became blood. I heard an angel of the waters say, you are just the Holy One who is and who was because you have passed judgment on these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you have given them blood to drink and they deserve it. I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent or give him glory. That is fascinating. So because the only one in the temple is God, the voice from the temple commanding these angels to go forth must be from God. Now here's the thing about this set of events. The other ones would have taken years to unfold. There's no way that can be the case here. The bowls are gonna come rapidly and they're gonna come with extreme ferocity. So the first four bowls will directly impact the earth and it cannot be a long period of time as we just read because life on earth couldn't sustain, it couldn't endure it. So this is the fullness of God's anger poured out on humanity. The first bowl was poured out on the earth and it said that painful sores broke out on everyone that had the mark of the beast. We should probably take this for exactly what it says. It's not metaphor, it's not hyperbole. Sores and painful things broke out on everybody, just like it did in Exodus chapter nine with the Egyptians. Some people believe, I think they're reading too much into it, they believe that maybe if the mark of the beast is a literal thing, like some kind of a microchip or something, that this is the body rejecting that mark of the beast. I don't think it's that, I think it's more than likely exactly what it says, and it is foreshadowing the eternal torment that these people are going to suffer later. He's given them a taste of hell on earth. The second bowl is poured out onto the sea. This is the salt waters. Now notice what it says. It could be like chapter eight where it's a metaphor, but in chapter eight, it said the sea was like blood. This it says it is blood. It doesn't say like it, it says that it is blood. Now this could be referring to the carnage. Think about billions and billions of aquatic animals dying at one time. Think about it, and it says it's like dead man's blood. It's congealed, it's disgusting, it's thick, it's gross. Now, if this is literal, imagine the implications. We go, we go nuts if there's a slight variation in temperature, environmental catastrophe. Think if everything living in salt waters dies. It would be a clear indication that the world is coming to an end, that things are coming to an end. The third bowl is like the second, except instead of salt waters, it's fresh water. Now that's even more impactful because that's where our living supply comes from, right? That would directly affect mankind. That would be fatal for us. And when this third bowl is poured out, there is precisely what it says. There is an angel of the waters that God has placed at these fresh waters. And this angel looks up to God 
and says, you are right for doing this. I approve of what you're doing, God, and I confirm, this is what he says, that these people deserve what you are doing. Verse six says, because they poured out the blood of the saints, because these evil people on earth have killed innocent people, they have shed blood of Christians, they have shed the blood of prophets for centuries, that God is going to give them blood to drink and that they absolutely deserve it. What does that mean for us? Guys, we live in an unbelievably brutal society. Unbelievably. We lock two men in a cage and we love the more blood that is shed as they beat each other to a pulp, right? We love seeing videos about road rage and people getting in fights in fast food restaurants and we watch television shows that glamorize things as, as audacious as cannibalism and blowing people's heads off and all of this carnage and destruction and we dabble with all this violence and we have this taste for blood as a society. And this angel says, they wanted blood, you gave them blood. They deserve it. Jesus said this to, to, to Peter, his, one of his closest friends. He said, Peter, if you live by the sword, you will, you'll die by the sword. If you live by violence, you're gonna die by violence. In the Old Testament in Hosea, I love this, it's very impactful. Hosea the prophet says, they sow the wind and they reap a whirlwind. We flirt with this violence, we flirt with this darkness, not knowing what we're going to reap from this flirtation of this darkness. They sow the wind, but they reap a whirlwind. Very heavy. The fourth bowl is poured out over the sun. Imagine throwing gasoline on what is already a blazing fire. And the very thing that sustains life will now be threatening to life. Now, one would think at this point that people would humble themselves, right? All these things are taking place, but instead of humbling themselves, they blaspheme the name of God. They did not repent for all the evil things that they have done. They shake their fist at the Lord, okay? I hope you guys appreciate my artistic liberties, liberties with this slide. I was very impressed with myself this week, so. It's gray on black. I mean, look at that. It's good. So the fifth, the fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into utter darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and because of their sores, but they did not repent of their works. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Look, this is Jesus speaking, look, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. All right. So far, the bowls have affected the land, the water, 
and the sun. They have targeted the earth, but it has obviously affected life on earth. The problem is, is that the Antichrist is still in control. So the fifth and the sixth bowls will directly affect the kingdom of the Antichrist, the Antichrist's kingdom. And the seventh bowl is going to do it in. It's going to finish it, okay? It says the fifth bowl is poured out onto the throne of the beast and that his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, this could be a literal darkness, literal darkness, that things go dark, like God turning the switch off. It could also be a metaphor. Maybe this means his kingdom becomes chaotic. Maybe it's starting to organizationally fall apart. And it's interesting to me, guys, as we've been talking about the kingdom of the Antichrist, this city where he's going to be is going to be the epicenter for entertainment, the epicenter for spirituality, the epicenter for political control. All the things that we look for right now to give us prosperity and hope. If this person will just get elected, if I can just read this one self-help book, if I can just think positive, if I can just make enough money, all these things that we put our eggs in those baskets and it is going to come to collapse, it's going to come to ruin. But don't all those things promise us prosperity? Imagine though, combine sores from the first bowl, the lack of water, combine the massive decay of all the dead creatures from the, from the oceans and from the, the, the uh, uh, streams and rivers, and then combine that with darkness. No wonder they gnawed their tongues in agony. When I was researching for this chapter, I don't know if you guys know this or not, this is a picture from Mammoth Cave. Mammoth Cave in Kentucky is actually renowned all around the world. It's known all around the world. And the reason why it's known all around the world is they say Mammoth Cave is one of the darkest places on planet Earth. There's actually a tour you can take when you go into Mammoth Cave. This is a picture from that tour where you can go to the darkest part of Mammoth Cave and they will set a lantern on the ground and they will turn it off. They say it takes about 15 seconds for people to go absolutely insane. People will start laughing uncontrollably because they don't know how to deal with their uncomfortableness. They will grab someone next to them and, and frantically hold on to them. They will scream at the person giving the tour, please turn on the light, please turn on the light, please turn on the light. The darkness sends them into absolute insanity. Imagine if this happened globally. Again, no wonder they gnawed their tongues in pain. The sixth bowl is poured out onto the great river Euphrates. Now, we've talked about the river Euphrates because I'm getting so fancy with my PowerPoints. I showed you guys a map, and there was the river Euphrates right there, and we talked about if that river were to ever dry up, that forces from the east could easily cross into the west in, in, the, in the Middle Eastern part of the world. They could cross over into the west and attack neighboring countries. This is precisely what is going to take place. And so the Antichrist knows that his time is getting short and he's got one more trick that he's gonna pull out of his hat. John says that he looked and he saw these things like frogs coming up out of the dragon, that's Satan, out of the false prophet and out of the Antichrist. Now it's not literally frogs, these are demonic spirits and what they do is, is these three will use manipulative words. They will use persuasive words along with signs and wonders. And they will convince all the armies of the world to gather in one place and fight on behalf of the Antichrist one more time. But who are they going to be fighting? Some people believe that the Antichrist is on the western side of the Middle East. 
and that someone will cross the Euphrates and fight the Antichrist. I don't believe that to be the case. More than likely, the Antichrist in this last great city will be on the eastern side of the Euphrates. And, and the Euphrates will dry up, giving the Antichrist the opportunity to cross the river and to go into modern-day Israel and fight one more battle, and that will be against the army of God, okay? It'll be the army of God. Now, who is this army? Not the army of God, but this one following the Antichrist. We talked about them in chapter 9. This is the 200 million person army. That's where this comes into play. Now, Jesus interrupts this vision of the bowls and says, John, look, I come like a thief. Jesus interrupts to let John know there's nothing humanity can do to stop this. This is going to take place. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is going to come like a thief? A thief comes unexpectedly. It comes on his schedule, not your schedule, right? No one's sitting there waiting. Oh, thanks, thief. You showed up exactly on time, right? They come on their schedule, and that's what Jesus says he's going to do. And this last battle, it says at the very end of this part that I just read, they assembled themselves in a place called Armageddon. Now, this bottom arrow is pointing towards Jerusalem, geographically almost right in the middle of Israel. If you go straight north a little bit, oddly enough, near a town called Nazareth, where Jesus lived, there is going to be this valley called the Valley of Megiddo, in Hebrew called Armageddon. I think it was Napoleon that actually stood on this ridge and looked out over this valley and said, this would be an amazing place to have an epic battle. Little did he know, the last epic battle that will ever take place will be in this valley. This is where the evil 200 million person army will meet the armies of God. We'll get to that later. It's actually quite anticlimactic. It goes quite quick. So um, let's get into the last part here. Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. A severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of all nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. So it's interesting, so far, the bowls have not hit one thing that is absolutely essential for humanity to live, the atmosphere. And that's where this last bowl comes in. The last bowl will be the final step in humanity's ultimate destruction. The voice from God in the temple says it's done. It's finished. Evil's time is up. He pours out the last bowl and he's about to go defeat evil once and for all on earth. Now the whole earth is about to move, literally. The biggest and last quake that we read about in the book of Revelation is right here. This quake not only breaks apart whatever this last city is, they call it Babylon the Great, not only is it going to rip this city into three parts, think about this, every single city on earth will be leveled. Imagine if we heard on the news when you got home that New York City crumbled, right? I don't know if you guys remember just in 2001 
when two buildings fell, how dramatic that was and traumatic that was. Imagine if all New York was gone and imagine if every single city on earth was leveled with it. Now, what that shows us is this. We get so arrogant as mankind. We look at the things we've built and the things that we've constructed. God is showing us that in an instance, all that man can create, he can uncreate. He can tear down all the things that we do just like that. Not just cities, though. All the institutions that we take such pride in, right? I was in D.C. earlier this week and driving around D.C. It would be easy for mankind to get arrogant when you see the capital of the greatest country that's probably ever existed. But it's not just the buildings. God is going to break down our economic systems, our religious systems, our political systems, all the thing that we find comfort in, that we find pride in. God is going to level. They're going to be laid to ruin. And it says, though, that Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. Verse 19 is extremely sad. This shows that God doesn't want to punish people. God doesn't want to destroy these things. But because they have chosen to blatantly disregard him, because they have chosen to not only not accept him, but to blaspheme him, to curse him, that they have chosen their own fate. God does not delight in this. How do we know that? Because he sent his only son as a means for everyone to escape this. It even says that it is God's will that none should perish. It is not God's desire that any go to hell, that any suffer his wrath. But they made their decision. They have decided not to follow and to, in fact, push away. They have blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God and God himself. So God's wrath will destroy every single island. Think about this. He will level every single mountain. And enormous hailstones, each weighing 100 pounds, will fall from the sky on people. The sky literally fell. And shockingly, shockingly, the people still did not repent. They shook their fist at God. They cursed at God. They blasphemed God because these things were so severe. Why? Not only why, how? How do you get to such a point to where your heart is so cold, your mind is so worthless, that God is literally shaking the earth and you still don't respond? Now, for some of you who think that just sounds crazy, Paul wrote in the book of Romans that God will give some people over to a reprobate mind. That means worthless, that they are incapable of even hearing what is right. Now, God doesn't do that because he hates people. God does that because people push him away so long that he finally removes his hands and say, you want it, you got it. My question for you today, though, is this. In the middle of turbulent times, when times get rough, right? God forbid when that loved one passes away or if you lose a job or a relationship falls apart, whatever happens in your life, these turbulent times, instead of looking up to God and saying, God, don't you know what you're doing up there? God, don't you see me down here? God, show me a sign, right? Do it on my terms, God, I want it now. Instead of this anger shaking our fist at God, maybe we should be humble enough and say, God, what are you trying to tell me? God, you're sovereign, you're good, you know what you're doing. 
There's some reason why the earth is falling apart around me. Why? Show me these things. Or, or, or. Are we listening or do we constantly make excuses for why we don't respond? Are we constantly making excuses for not doing the right thing? So many people tell me all the time, Corey, God never, I don't ever hear God. I've never heard God speak. If you want to hear God speak, pick one of these books up. There are actually parts. There was a part in the chapter we covered today where it is straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Straight from the mouth of God. So whenever people say, I don't hear God, I don't feel God, it's because we haven't positioned ourselves to hear God or feel God. No wonder you're not gonna hear God when you're watching Netflix four hours a day, you're on Facebook three hours a day, and when you pray, you don't shut up long enough to hear him speak. We're so, hold on, we're so busy talking to him and telling him all of our selfish desires that we don't shut up and be still like David said and listen. It's good to ask God questions, but you have to be still. We can't be still, we're incapable of it right now. I was just in, again, I was just in DC, I'm in Ronald Reagan Airport, and people can't be alone by themselves for 30 seconds. Even when we're at coffee shops, places designed to talk with other people. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't hear God, I don't see God. It's because you're always looking down. Even Romans chapter one says, if you want to make sure that God still exists, just walk outside and look at the stars. Yes. Just look at the moon that hangs there and controls the tides of the ocean. <sighs> just look around you. Look at your children. Look at people around you. Look at the order. Look at the design. God says them everywhere around you. It's not that there's a problem with God's voice. It's a problem with our ears. It's a problem with us. My question is, guys, listen, and, and you're going to hate this. Some of you have so much unrepentant sin in your life that you can't hear God anymore because there's too much convoluting the signal. I don't know where Christianity got off thinking that we could get saved and that there's no fruit from our salvation, that we continue living the same kind of life that we did before Christ. That's not the way it works. And people say to me all the time, Corey, I'm saved. But if you're not producing fruit, I would argue with that. Because Jesus, that's the guy we claim to follow, right? Said you will know a tree by its fruit. And I can say all day long that I'm an apple tree, but if there's only oranges on my branches, I'm not an apple tree. I can say I'm a Christian all day long, but if I do not produce the fruit of the Spirit like the Bible tells me, I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how many tattoos I have or shirts I wear or bumper stickers I put on my car. If my life is not looking more like Jesus every day, I'm not following Jesus. But some of us have filled up our antennas. We have filled up our lives with so many distractions, with so much bad theology that tells us we can say one prayer and we're locked in forever and there's no endurance or dedication or faithfulness to Christ. It's no wonder why we can't hear God. It's no wonder we won't be alone. We will not take time to set aside. That's why we're doing this fast, guys. 
That's why we sacrifice some things. That's why we lay some things aside in the hope of finding clarity. And if you were with us for the beginning of the book of Revelation, there are seven churches that Jesus talks about. The first three chapters of Revelation are almost exclusively Jesus talking, straight from the mouth of God. And with all the churches that he addresses, these are people that profess to be Christians. Jesus said, for those of you that have ears, listen to what the Spirit says. For those of you, and it doesn't mean those of you who physically have ears. Jesus says, for those of you who are willing to listen, listen. And then at the end of those three chapters, look at this. For those of us that don't think that God is not doing everything he can to get our attention, Jesus says, look, see, I stand at the door and I knock. And those of you who love to get into the Greek, look up the Greek for the word knock there. This isn't like a really kind like UPS knock. This is Jesus slamming on the door, beating on the door, yelling, let me in. And it says, for those of you, listen, this is very important. He says, for those of you who hear me, who hear my voice, and that's not it. You know why that's important? Straight out of Jesus's mouth, he says right here, it's not just hearing God or acknowledging God, that's not enough. We must also get up off the couch, open the door and invite Christ into our home. So those of you who claim Christianity, because I believe James, the brother of Jesus Christ said, even the demons in hell believe and they're still in hell. It is more than just saying, I believe Jesus is up there. It is responding to that belief. It is not just hearing the voice of God. It is opening the door and letting him come in. The scripture goes on to say, and if you do that, I will come in and I will eat with you. I will reside with you. I will spend time with you. But first, we have to have ears that are even willing to hear the truth. There are people that hate this church, not because of me, but because when you get into this book, there are things in this book that will absolutely make you mad but it's the truth. And even if the truth makes us mad, it is what the truth does is it sets us free. But you have to be willing, listen, but you have to be willing to hear the hard things. You have to be willing and not just willing to hear it. You have to be willing to do it. Again, James, the brother of Jesus said, let us not just be hearers of the word. He said, let us be doers of the word. Just hearing that book will not change the world. But living that book will absolutely change the world. It will change your marriage. It will change your family. It will change your relationships. It will change governments and economic systems. It will change religious organizations. It will change everything. We have to be able to listen and willing to listen. And we have to respond. Right now, me included, God is knocking on the hearts of everyone, saying, I have something to tell you. I have a life I want you to live. I have instruction that I want you to respond to. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's in the Gospels, straight from the mouth of God. What is God trying to tell you right now? And are we humble enough, whatever the situation is, are we humble enough to say, God, I'm not going to shake my fist at you. I just need some clarity right now. 
And listen, all of you in this room, you need to pray, and the Bible says to confess with your mouth. You need to say it and ask God questions, and then shut up long enough. Sit there and see if God doesn't give you clarity. Last thing, Jesus' disciples one time asked him, they said, Jesus, we're about to go do ministry. You wanted us to do ministry. We were listening. You told us to go. We're going to go. But what if we don't know what to say? And Jesus said, just pray, and the Holy Spirit will tell you exactly what to say, tell you exactly what to do. If you don't know what to do, pray for God to give you wisdom and listen. Listen. God will show you what to do. He'll show you how to respond. He'll show you where to go. He'll show you how to lead your family. Wives, if you don't know how to be the wife you're supposed to be, pick this up. It'll tell you. Go to Proverbs. Men, if you don't know how to be the husband you're supposed to be, go to Ephesians 5. It'll tell you. If you're in here and you don't know what the definition of love is, go to 1 Corinthians 13. It'll tell you what love is in detail. If you don't know how to follow Christ, go to the book of Matthew. Read chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount. God speaks to us, and a lot of times he speaks to us right through that. But we got to pick it up. You have to want to do this. Would you guys bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you're in this room and maybe you're new and you're like, what in the heck is up with this guy? When I first became a Christian, I didn't really care for people very much. I prayed one time in a little prayer room in a Pentecostal church, God, let me love people. God supernaturally did something to my heart that day. I love people. Man, I love people. I love them. I love hearing their stories. I love, I love getting to know where they're from and what their dreams are. I love people. I can genuinely say to any of you in this room, that I care for you, I love you, I'll do anything I can within my power for you. If that's the case from a broken, fallen man like myself, how much more does the God in heaven love you and think about you and want what's best for you? This wrath that we talked about today, you don't have to be afraid of that. You don't ever have to suffer that. But the only way to escape what we talked about today is the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're new, maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you, you're just curious, you have questions, up here to my right, your left is Dave. If you have any questions for him, he, he's not afraid of hard questions or anything like, come up here and talk to him. See if maybe he can help you and point you in the right direction. For all of you in this room who are going through turbulent times, the Bible says where any two or more are gathered in my name, I'm right there in the middle. Come up here to the front and let a man or a woman pray for you, please. Why would you not do that? It can be something as small as you have a job interview to as big as you just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. Come up here and let someone pray with you. Then the last thing is we have communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, that reminds us that Jesus Christ came that any that believe in him will not die but have everlasting life. We will never suffer the wrath of God, but we will be in perfect harmony with him for eternity if we will ask God to forgive us of our sins, turn away from the things that we do, and choose to follow him. 
everyone is welcome to take communion. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, Lord, give us the courage to, 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 to remove any, any sinful nature that we have, God, any, any sinful things that we're doing, Lord. God, help us to get rid of anything that, that displeases you, God. Lord, let us fall at your feet with humility and say, God, we, we want your forgiveness and we want your help to move away from these actions. Lord, any distractions in our life, God, if we need to put down the phone or turn off the TV or turn off the radio or whatever it is, God, Lord, give us the strength to set those things aside so we can hear you. Lord, let us pick up our Bibles and read them. Lord, when we pray, let us take time to listen, to meditate on you, to wait for your response. Draw us closer to you, God. Lord, let us be wise enough to have ears that want to listen and to respond to what you say. Bless my friends in this room. Bless my brothers, my sisters, God. Lord, bless the people in this room that maybe don't believe. Lord, open up our eyes and our ears, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys so much.